0: Hello and welcome to the Attribution Marketing Podcast where we help businesses, brands, and entrepreneurs get more out of their marketing spend. On today's episode, we have Christina Moss from CIM Consulting, one of the leading marketing, creative, and public relations firms in South Florida. Christina has worked with brands from all around the country and all around the world to get more out of that creative push and creative messaging. Christina, thank you so much for being on the show. How are you?
1: I'm good, Lucas, thank you for having me.
0: So why don't we just start off with a quick kind of career arc for you. How did you get into this position? What led you to the space you're in now?
1: Yeah, so after college, I actually went um, and worked in fundraising. So I was a major gift officer for some large institutions, one of which I'm sure you've heard of because I believe you're an alumni at the University of Miami. And I was doing major gifts there for the College of Arts and Sciences. And about two years into that role, I was asked to take on the role as Director of Business Development and Marketing for a boutique commercial real estate firm that about a year and a half into, was then acquired by Colliers, the third largest real estate company in the world. So I quickly realized that role was probably going to change and I would have to pivot. So I jumped into sales in real estate And at that same time, I had a friend reach out to me who wanted to launch a business, and they wanted my help with the marketing, and that's what I did. So we worked on a app, basically. It was an Uber for Medicare and Medicaid patients. So we did all the branding, the web development. We did market research surveys. We actually passed legislation up in Tallahassee. That company was extremely successful and sold. And in an accident, I ended up having a consulting firm Just based off this one client, after working with that client, I had a couple other big companies reach out to me to try to hire me full-time, and I was finally able to tell them I had a consulting firm and was happy to do that with them, and that kind of led to the birth of what is now uh, CIM Consulting.
0: Wow, quite the journey. So tell us a little bit more about what some of these enterprise clients or recent clients that you've dealt with as the consulting firm is getting started. What were those guys after? What was, what was it that you were doing that they were attracted to that uh, they wanted to hire you for?
1: Yeah, a lot of what they wanted to hire me for at the beginning, which is still one of you know the main things that we do, is, is business development. My background is in business development and marketing, so it's that, that people aspect. How do we create those long-term relationships that end up into turning into sales? How do we leverage those relationships to make it mutually beneficial for both businesses, obviously to increase sales, brand awareness, etc. cetera. So a lot of it was business development. At the time, I was extremely active in the nonprofit community. I still am. I was building a lot of young professional groups, so I helped a lot with their certain clients' events and building out young professional groups. Most recently, I was on the board of Jackson Health Foundation trying to help them build out that young professional group as well. And all of that just transitioned into now what is our you know, boutique communications agency, where we do websites, graphic design, social media, digital marketing events, which obviously has been different throughout the pandemic, but we're lucky that we had a portfolio of different things that we could offer then and pivot throughout this crazy time.
0: So I think you brought up a few points that, that give you a unique angle on some of these projects so you mentioned a few things the way we describe those kind of initiatives is that they have a very long sales or conversion cycle it's a long customer journey jackson health wants to put together an organization because maybe the benefits of the young professionals organization might pay dividends far in the future and some of the other sort of enterprise clients that you were alluding to they have these very long sales cycles and they start with brand awareness, they start with getting the message out there, then people become interested, then the mid funnel things happen. And then ultimately, there's a conversion that might be three, six, nine months into the future. So my question to you is, how are you walking clients through some of these journeys that take so long before a conversion, a real sort of transaction takes place? Talk us through your expertise there and how that's working today.
1: Yeah, I think that obviously everybody wants to immediately go to their end goal, which is how do we make money? But I think that because a lot of people rush to that immediate goal, they miss a lot of other fundamental parts, which is what makes other brands stand out. So looking at your logo, looking at your mission, looking at your brand guidelines, because everything aligned to make you a brand that stands out? Because these days, the competition is extremely high. Before you start figuring out what those funnels are that are going to help you make money, you have to really look at a brand as a whole and see what are you doing, where could you excel. One of the things that people really, I think, miss the mark on sometimes is reputation management and looking at what people are saying about them on Google. There are a lot of different things that we work with brands on. Obviously, then once we start going into the sales funnel, we look at who are your current customers. That's the best tool to test really is, current customer base and then looking at new opportunities. And obviously, again, going back to leveraging your relationships, um, your team's relationships and, and seeing ways and, and creating new and different avenues to increase sales.
0: So t- talk us through maybe what your approach would be if uh, a large business comes to you, it's been around for a while, a, a legacy business. They might have some customers in a, a older generation, let's say, and they're trying to make that transition into Almost this new digital economy, maybe brought on by the pandemic or just some natural forces of technology, things are a lot different for some of these big enterprise brands. I think traditional distribution channels and wholesale and retail, all those components have really changed as a result of the pandemic, but also as a result of just technology changes over the past few years. So if someone comes to you and says, We're here today, but we want to be way over here in, in two years from now. Just give us a high-level breakdown of how you might approach that situation to align the brand, get some feedback from the customers, and, and just put together that whole package so that everything is focused in the same direction. Talk us through how you would handle a situation like that.
1: Yeah. First, I think it would be important to know what they've done in the past and where they succeeded and where they haven't. We're recently working with a client who wants to do direct mail campaigns. I personally do not see the value in direct mail campaigns anymore. I just think it is something, it's antiquated. I don't think anybody looks at the mail. If you look at the research, millennials actually aren't responding as well to direct mail. A few years ago, they were, but now with the pandemic, things have changed. So it's really important to stay on what is trending and how people are receiving information. Another thing is obviously the pandemic, I think, has been huge, especially for digital marketing agencies to get those older brands and older people that are involved to understand that you can still be successful and work differently and learn that. All of these new things are for their benefit. The beauty of digital marketing is that you can track everything, right? There's ROI. We have tons of insights. You can have your um, existing customer base targeted with a direct, a completely different message than your new customer database. We're doing that now. We have two ads running, one specifically for the customers we know we have, and then another one for customers that we know we want to target, so we can do A-B testing. You can see which ad is working better than the other. So it, it allows you to pivot quickly and also be reactive and proactive to make sure you're getting the most bang for your buck. And again, by doing all the digital marketing, you're able to really see where your dollars are spent and it, how to spend them wisely so you're not just, like, frivolously sending out, you know, postcards and direct mail and not knowing what kind of return you're getting. We're really seeing a huge trend in that, and we're really lucky that that's something that we've been offering during the pandemic because clients that had budgets that weren't really highly affected, did and wanted to have the time to update their websites and really work on digital marketing. And we've been seeing that there's also been some discounts with digital marketing from Facebook and LinkedIn, just wanting to get people to spend their money more on those platforms. And they've been extremely successful. Again, it depends on what kind of business you have. Are you a B2B? Are you a B2C? And that's one of the things that we would counsel our clients on as well. But if we're talking just direct B2C, I think digital marketing is absolutely something that they should be looking into.
0: So I know there's still traditional advertising methods out there. You mentioned direct mail. You have terrestrial radio. You have terrestrial TV campaigns. And I'm not expecting you to be an expert in in all those channels, but some of these enterprise brands need to play in a space that is almost... uh, I don't want to say can't be measured, but it can't be measured in the same way that a direct response digital campaign can be measured. So I know you deal a lot in public relations, communication strategy. You talked about reputation. Very difficult to say, hey, we've we've rolled out a six-month reputation campaign, and your Google stars went from 2.5 stars to 4 stars. But the direct correlation to sales uh, or new leads or prospects is sort of lost amidst all the other things that are happening in the digital ecosystem. So my question to you is, when you bring in channels like that, that don't have a direct response component, maybe it's PR, maybe it's reputation, how are you measuring that or bringing it into the equation when you report back on results for clients? Or maybe said in a different way. What are the results or the KPIs that clients should be looking at when they're measuring things like that that don't have that direct response digital attribute where you can
1: track it? I think we get this a lot with PR, and I think what people don't realize is that PR is one of the best things that you can have for your website, your SEO, and being subject matter as experts. So if we're working with a bank, we want to position that CEO to be the person that they come to for all things bank-related in South Florida. It may not necessarily yield customers open, opening bank accounts tomorrow, but they'll know that, wow, this bank has been featured in American Bankers Weekly and, and things like that. So when they go and they do a Google search, It's something that'll pop up more. It helps with your SEO tremendously. And again, it's not immediate dollars in the door. We can't track it the same way, but it does give that added value of when people go up, go and Google you, they see that your team are subject matter experts in X, Y, and Z. And it it does become a differentiator when they're going to make a decision of, Where they want to open a bank or where they want to go visit a medical clinic or is that doctor being featured in ocean drive and things like that so that traditional pr again it doesn't have clients need to get comfortable with not everything that we're going to do is going to have dollars attached to it i cannot directly translate a lot of the things that we put into our quote-unquote sales funnel directly measured in dollars, right? Digital marketing is very easy to do that, but you still have to do all these other pieces because at the end of the day, if you have an amazing digital marketing campaign, but they go and look at you on Google and you don't have that kind of brand awareness backing, who are they going to go with? Are they going to go with the person that's doing the dollar spend on digital marketing? Or are they going to go with the person that's oh, also spending some of, those, some of those marketing dollars on PR to make sure that their team is being seen as the number one in their industry?
0: Fair points. So I know you're the uh... Communications, social media, Maven, you're helping be the voice for a few brands and put the right communication plan out there. But talk us through, in your opinion, how the social media marketing strategy might have changed in the past few years. I think I'll set you up for this. But a couple of years back, a brand could post on Instagram or Facebook and expect to see some organic engagement. And what we're seeing is It's very much pay for play these days. And unless you are going viral or have really just tremendous content that that isn't selling anything, it's not coming from a brand, it's truly helpful or it's entertaining or something like that, you're really going to struggle to get through the algorithm and get the exposure and the eyeballs that you want. And whether by design or just by nature of supply and demand, and the amount of content that's out there, you're basically put in a position where if you want to get eyeballs, correct me if I'm wrong, excuse me, but if you want to get eyeballs on your posts or on that organic content, you need to pay for it, sort of need to boost it. So if you would talk us through that kind of paradigm shift, and then if there are any tips or secrets to how to get the organic stuff, get more legs on the organic stuff, please feel free to share those because our audience is definitely keen to, to learn how to get that content out there more effectively.
1: No, I completely agree with you. I think that unfortunately it is becoming a pay to play. Social media is also becoming where you have to be very nimble, right? Like when Instagram launched Reels, the people who are getting the most engagement now on Reels are those early adapters to the Reels. So as soon as one of the social media channels comes out with a new um, service line, you have to really jump on it so that you can be one of those first people using I'm just going to continue to use a reel cuz it was the latest thing that Instagram used to get that organic engagement. I think it's also really important to create content with other brands. So we're seeing a huge push to and when, when influencers are doing giveaways or loop giveaways where you're having a lot of different brands get engagement. So it's not just one specific company doing something. Influencer engagement is something that it has its pros and its cons and it depends again on what kind of industry it is and what they're doing but it is unfortunately becoming a pay-to-play we are seeing organic engagement going down and down unless um, you're really taking advantage of those reels videos are always better received than photos static images are just not get are, are just not getting the kind of engagement that they were once before and it is just, again, pay to play and really just being nimble to the different services that social media channels are putting out, as well as creating content that people want to share. You want to give people tidbits of information, useful things that they're going to want to share on their platforms because that shareability is what creates that organic engagement.
0: So let's keep going on this thread. Cause I think you have some expertise here. It, just in regards to the influencer marketing, I think the heyday of influencer marketing might have been a, a year or two back. You correct me if I'm wrong, and though there's still a tremendous opportunity there. The Kardashians used to put out a post or two and it would really move the needle. But now I don't want to say everyone's an influencer, but you have these young kids doing shuffle dances on TikTok and it's more more socially relevant than a Kim Kardashian post. The the question here is, is there true value in it is if you sell mattresses, is it better to have a mattress expert with twenty thousand followers get your post out as opposed to some you know big celebrity just putting a generic post out to millions of people. How do you go about selecting that influencer? And then maybe is there a, a way to determine that it's a good strategy or not a good strategy, depending on what the brand and the offer is? Like could you eliminate it as, hey, this won't work for this business, but it'll probably work for another business. I just know there's a lot of enterprise brands out there that have big budgets and they want to try all types of marketing channels, but this one probably escapes them and is hard to understand, hard to measure. So I wanted to get some guidance from you about maybe the best way to evaluate it and and start that channel and how to best succeed at it. Probably 15 questions tied up in there. So take it however (laughs) you can.
1: Yeah, so... I see there's a couple of influencers that I just love. They're all in that health and wellness space. And I think it's that ability for an influencer to connect with their audience. Shut the kale up. Jeanette Ogden does a really good job doing She's someone that is extremely authentic. I think it's really important to, when you choose an influencer, to make sure that they are authentic, right? Because people know when they're being sold. Now with Instagram's rules, they have to put whether it's a sponsored post or not. So people will be able to sift through what's real and what's not and you want to be able to create those relationships with influencers that have created relationships with their audiences and before even i think agreeing to doing an influencer marketing campaign you should look at that for their insights see what their click rates are through other campaigns that they've worked with i don't think they have to be super specific of what you know that looks like and what they've spent but it's choosing influencers that have audiences that they really relate to. Shut the Kill Up is great. Melissa Wood Health is amazing. She does a very good job of relating with her audience. I would also encourage people to, before they reach out to the influencers as a brand, like try to reach out as a person and see if they respond because that's something that's going to matter. If you reach out and they don't respond, I wouldn't necessarily agree to work with, influence, with that influencer because then all those requests go to that bucket and they'll never get it and you'll never get, if they have a question about that product, who's going to be responding to that? So that's something that I always recommend. Have someone from your team reach out. Does that person or one of their team members actually respond? If they don't, you're probably not going to get the most bang for your buck because they're just trying to get the money across and not really getting the purpose and the mission of what you're trying to sell to their audience. So it, it becomes a little bit more personal. We always go through, look at the client that we're working with and propose several different influencers, and then we go through this exercise with them. What do their insights look like? What kind of relationship do they have with their audience? Are they responsive if someone from our team just responds? And then from there, build that relationship and see what kind of campaign we can create and work with the influencer to create that campaign because they know what is going to work best for their audience. Do they respond best to a video or just a post or story. Obviously, they have their pricing that you have to work around, but it it, it becomes, again, I go back to relationships because that's what this is all about. What is the relationship that the influencer has with their audience? And then how do you as a brand become part of that relationship to get your message across using the influencer as an avenue to create that relationship?
0: Well said. So final question for you here. I think a lot of brands, Uh, especially when they approach social media, there's so much that can be done. There's so many channels that you could post on. You could do the short vertical videos. You could do long form, 20-minute long deep dive videos. You could do photo shoots or you could write full-length blog posts on LinkedIn and Medium and everything in between. So my question to you is, given that budget and effort and time is all finite, if you were to work with, any particular client, what's your process for determining what channels they should be on? That's part one to the, to the question. And then two, do you ever find yourself recommending that if you can't do something consistent or do it well or you can't stick to it, that it's almost better to not participate at all? How do you evaluate what channels a particular brand, client, product should be on? And if resources are limited, how do you help them decide to participate or not in which channels to participate in? Go for it.
1: Completely agree with everything you're saying. We have to look at the industry like a, a, a bank again, necessarily I think would be better for LinkedIn and the messaging on the platform is not the same. The way that you communicate on LinkedIn is not the way that you communicate on Instagram and Facebook usually are a little bit more similar, but it depends on what your industry is. If we're talking about a clothing brand, I would absolutely spend way more time and effort in, on Instagram and Facebook than I would on LinkedIn. But consistency is key. Twitter is that platform that if you cannot be consistently on there communicating, it's not one we recommend to clients. If they only have the time to post you know, once a week, we do not recommend Twitter. It just depends on the industry and what is your goal, right? So Instagram and Facebook, are you, what are we selling? And then I think LinkedIn would be a platform that you would use for like blog posts. Let's Write an article, create one of our people to be the subject matter expert in that industry. LinkedIn is for deeper communication and more information where people really want to learn something. And I would recommend Facebook and Instagram to be higher level. What can we sell quick? Really have a good call to action on there and, and using that as it's just, it's lighter. It, it's a lighter platform and LinkedIn is something where you have, it's more business focused. So consistency, again, is key. If you don't have that much time, I would pick at most three platforms to use. And just if you can't be consistent, don't do it at all until you have the bandwidth to do it. Once you do, then let's move forward. But until that point in time comes, social media is not something that I would invest in until that you can do it on a consistent basis.
0: Excellent. So for everybody out there listening, where – Where should folks go if they want to get in touch with you and get some services or find out how to put all this stuff together? Give yourself a shout-out. Where can our audience go to learn more about what you have to offer?
1: Yeah, so my website, uh, www.ChristinaMoss.com. We are also on social media, CIM Consulting.
0: You heard it here first, folks. Thank you so much to Christina Moss from CIM Consulting. You can find her online at ChristinaMoss.com. For anybody out there listening to this episode, we will put the link in the description so you can go check out Christina. Again, Christina, thanks so much for dropping the knowledge. This is the Attribution Marketing Podcast, signing off.